everybody, welcome to episode 147 of Making It. I'm Bob Claggett here with Jimmy Duresta. Oh, hello. How are you guys? Welcome back. Doing well. Also have David Picciuto. Good day, everybody. What's up? You know what I'd really like to figure out? Yeah. And then you can tell me what's up. I'd like to figure out how to introduce you guys at the same time, but then not have you stumble over each other when you're trying to say your part. Hmm. Are you, you know asking I mean? for the impossible? I think I am. <laughs> or, or we have to, like, figure out the perfect rhythm so I can say, Hey, I'm Bob. I'm here with David Picciuto and Jimmy Dressa. And then you guys at the same time go, Hi, Hi Bob. Or, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the solution <laughs> is. Hi, Bob. <laughs> There's always that slight delay, so we we know that the getting that on time would be hard and yeah. confusing. And that's true. Oh, well. uh, anyway, so what's up? to the listeners, if you have a good way for us to start the show <laughs> after a uh, hundred and fifty of these, let us know. Yeah, may as well uh, try to figure out how to do this the right way. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, we'll get it right. That's right. Uh, I just made a workbench. Yes, nice, and it came out really good. And uh, Jimmy made a little cameo in there. <laughs> I saw that. That was very cute. Thank you. Wait. You, really? Yep. How did I miss that? I drove to Ohio. You you commented on the on the video last night or yesterday, and I had no idea what your comment meant. <laughs> I'm like, I think Jimmy commented. I think he commented on the wrong video. And then it hit me that during the Patreon segment, I showed your your doll, and I'm like, oh, yeah. that's what he's referring to. I thought I thought you were going to yeah. say something. I was like patiently waiting for you to like kind of say something silly or funny, but. You just ign- you just like and if you wanted it you just kind of like I was there in the frame. Yeah, so, yeah, he's cute. We're uh, we're we're trying to be a little bit more subtle with the, with the humor. Uh, that workbench is uh, is a beefy hunk of tool, and I'm I'm really loving it. Yeah. yeah. Now I yeah. I watched it, but then I got distracted in the second like near the end when you were explaining the like all the changes you were going to make and stuff. We were we got talking. And so I missed it. But I saw that the end of it was not cut flush. What's the plan there? I know you probably said it in the video, and I should just go watch it. But I think it's troll I'm bait. I'm just going to ask you. I, uh, actually, <laughs> actually, all I said in the video was we're going to handle this in part two because it's going to be a two-parter. Oh, okay. But, gotcha. um, I, and I haven't done it yet, but what I'm going to do is I'm um, – well, I've, I've started it. So I, I've taken a circular saw and cut it as deep as I could possibly go all the way through – Flip the whole top over and do the same thing, and try to like leave like um, an eighth inch o- overlap. Like, try not to like cut it perfect on the second time around, and then just take a belt sander and sand it flush. Mm. That's that's the plan. Yep, gotcha. Yeah, and uh, to I think this is going to disappoint people, but I'm not going to make it like perfectly flat. I don't know that I need the most absolute flat bench in the world. Um, that's when I watch bench videos. That seems to be a very important thing to people. And I want a, I want a, a basically flat bench so when I'm assembling things, I can get things together easier. But uh, a lot of people have suggested I do the the router thing where I run the rails along the side and then just run the router along the entire bench, which just sounds like a horrible, awful task. <laughs> yeah, messy. That sounds like a wasted afternoon to me. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So um, I have a big um, number six or number seven um, plane that I'm just going to get the high spots, going to take a, a straight edge and just kind of eyeball it. And when it's good enough, it'll be good enough. What's yeah. Jimmy, what's your saying? If it looks straight, it is straight. If it looks straight, it is straight. But you know what you could do, too, is just t- take, like, a piece of plywood, like a three-quarter-inch piece of plywood, put three pieces of, like, 100-grit sandpaper on them, spray glue them, so you have, like, three, mm-hmm. through the size of three huh. squares of sandpaper, yeah. and put, yeah. put handles on both ends, and between you and your partner, put a bunch of weights on top, and then just drag it back and forth across the whole top for, like, 20 minutes, and that'll get rid of all the high spots. And That's... <laughs> that's brilliant well i was gonna say even even a step past that like if you don't need a really flat surface all the time but you want it on occasion make like a really simple you know torsion box or something really thin that you can set on top of your bench oh, to have yeah. that work surface if you need it and then you know maybe make it where you can hang it behind a door or something if yeah. that's important but and it's almost flat now so i made the top in three sections and those three sections individually got to go through the planer which made them nice and and flat but then when i glued them up together i tried so hard to like make sure they were all level but there was uh there's a little bit of dip maybe a 16th 
and it's not that much. The sixteenth isn't much dip in the in the center where mm. they're not completely even. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And then it, that's when you use that pencil trick where you kind of just give it a couple scribbles with the pencil, and then you run the sled. Either it's the hand plane or the big sanding sled over the whole thing, and mm-hmm. then you see where the pencil's still showing. That's where your deep spots are. That's a good call. Yeah, yeah. That's a good tip, sir. Yeah, me and me and Welder when we we did this whole Corian thing, this whole Corian kitchen once, and. We had to join two things, two long, two like almost seven foot joints. So we, we epoxied them together and we had to make it smooth. And you epoxy Corian with the same exact color it is. So once you get a good sanding job, you could, it's almost virtually impossible to see where the joint was if you do it cleanly. We had to sand this joint and we came up with that idea. We just took a bunch of the steel weights that were laying around, put it on a big sanding block, and we literally just dragged it back and forth. And it was like 100 degrees that day, and we're both in there like dripping sweat, <laughs> and there's like sweat dripping in with the sanding. It was a pain in the butt. But I learned, hmm. how to, I learned that lesson that day of just making a weighted sled. And then you could, when you, you could swirl it around, you spin it, and it, you know, it starts to really flatten everything. When you, um, this is kind of off topic, but when you epoxy Corian pieces, because it's so smooth, do you have to like roughen up the surface or drill out, you know, make pockets to make the two edges? Uh, no, the epoxy that, well, you, you don't want to put it right on a perfectly polished edge, but a saw cut edge worked good for me. So if you pass it mm. through the table saw and you have that rough cut edge. But yeah, the epoxy for, for Corian is like super, I remember I said a couple weeks ago, if it smells really poisonous, you know, it's going to re- be really yeah. strong. And yeah, so it works really well. So the minute you like pull the trigger on that corking gun, like your neighbors start banging on the floor going, what are you doing down there? So it's, it's that kind of smell. So you have to really do it in a ventilated area if anybody ever uses Corian or hmm. uses the glue that comes with it. It comes with a, an expensive caulking gun where it pushes two tubes of epoxy at the same time and they mix in the tip. So when you buy it, you got to buy the tips with it too. So the tips are disposable. It's like that fancy thing you see like the dentist use when he pulls it and it mixes up through as it goes down to the end. Nice. Yeah, it's good stuff. I wonder why like most five-minute epoxies don't have that. Some of them do. Some of them do. I mean, I've seen a few, but it seems like something that would be pretty standard. But I guess it's the same as squirting it on a piece of board and mixing it by hand. The problem is that those tips, you know, if you're like a big production company, when you do it a lot, those tips, you got to buy them by the hundreds because... The minute you use them, they're no good, so you got to just throw them away. It's also kind of environmentally not friendly because you're using this big plastic thing. I always, I always think of like what life's going to be like in 2,000 years from now. They're going to find thousands of straws, whatever the future generations, they're going to say, this is, yeah, this is what they use to pray to the gods. That's why they have so many straws. Everybody had their straw. And they, it, you know, like everything's going to be misconstrued in the wrongest way. Yeah. And they're going to say these mixing I, tips were part of a ritual. They, or they paintbrushes when they attach things <laughs> you know the ritual of yeah. attaching things <laughs> everything's going to be attached to some i recently heard that every straw ever made is still in existence that's why that's why i'm thinking about that, that <laughs> i heard it too that just that hurts my brain mm-hmm. it really hurts oh yeah straws are very useful actually yeah <laughs> a good clean straw i always keep it tucked in my visor just in case you never know when you're gonna have to like breathe underwater or something <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. never know. You never know. You flipped over in your car and, you know, the only thing that works is That's, your face and your lungs. I'm going to die. Oh, wait, I have that straw in my hat. And then a heavy rain comes. <laughs> Battery's dead. You never know. Yep. You, you never know. You never know. You never know. You know, you keep it in your toolbox. <laughs> well, Jimmy, what have you been up to? Uh, I, what am I doing? I... Oh, I worked on my printing press this week. I was really excited to get my little old printing press going. I'm going to do a collections video this week. We got stalled over the weekend. We planned on doing it over the weekend. Brett's going to help me shoot it. I'm going to do a video. I'm at 1,100,000 in change at the moment, but for the 100,000 mile marks, I like to do a collections video. And I'm going to do one on all the machines I have that create type. And of course, the obvious ones are the printing presses, but I have a couple of more obscure machines that create typeface either through paper or in paper or on metal. Or, so I'm going to talk about a couple of these more obscure machines that I have. Uh, so everything mechanical pertaining to type. And uh, so I'm getting those old machines kind of collected because I have them like stowed away. So I've been doing that. And part of the process was printing up my business cards this week. So I have some B-roll for that shot, for that video. And uh, I started a few, a few months ago, my buddy Levi, who I met through the community... Levi's the boat builder. I covered him in one of my vlogs. 
Levi came to me and he he brought to my house these two old leaf springs from his truck, his old Chevy truck, and goes, I'm giving these to you because I know you'll do something with them. And just this weekend, I started making this big, giant, heavy Bowie knife out of a piece of the leaf spring. And that was a lot of fun. And I, I never really, I, I always say I'm going to blacksmith, but this time I actually did quite a bit of blacksmithing. I did it over the weekend and I was pretty successful at what I wanted to do. Sometimes you, you, you know what you want to do and you try and do it and you're just like, this isn't exactly how I hoped this would come out. But I was actually able to kind of focus, think, and attempt it, <clears throat> and it worked out really good. So I'm on my first big phase of this knife build. Now I get into the more finer shaping with the grinding. But yeah, I was able to draw it out and put a bevel on it all by hand, you know, just a hammer and the heat. So I learned quite a bit on that one. That was a good one. So uh, maybe within the week I'll have that video done. So that's it. And then my dad's coming today, so I'm going to show my dad around the house. He hasn't been here in a couple of years. He's coming with some nice. friends. And uh, Oh, by the way, today is December 4th. Mm -hmm. Do you know what anniversary yeah. it is today? Um, you guys don't even remember no. our anniversaries. <laughs> it was a year. I'm making it 100. It was a year, a year ago for making it. You guys knew that, right? You guys are just kidding with yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was one year ago. <laughs> That's crazy. Can you believe that it? That was fun. It's amazing. No. One year ago. It's funny because Jenny and I were just talking about uh, that trip to Boston yesterday in a different context completely, but I hadn't even put together in my head that it was like a year from when it actually happened. Yep. I was thinking about it yesterday after you mentioned it, or a couple days ago, whenever that was, and uh, just like, I don't know, making it 200 seems so far away, and I guess it is almost a year from now, but we got to do something, right? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it was such a great, it was such a great weekend, you know, the chemistry of everything that came together. And, and there was a couple of really good friendships I developed there. And I introduced a couple guys that are still friends, my buddy Derek and uh, his buddy and his, and Graz, Graz and Derek. I, I introduced them at the bar we went to afterwards and they've been friends ever since that moment. And me and me and Derek made friends that day and Derek, happy anniversary, Derek. And uh, he's, he's become a bro of mine. He's come and helped out at some of the, uh, the classes that we did here at the house and, he helped with the TP thing. Graz came to the TP thing. So it was, that seems like five years ago, considering the, the few friendships that we made. And they just, you know, that's the greatest thing about this community is that you make friends with somebody and like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history already from the get go, even though you guys don't know each other personally. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, uh, so making it was great. It was great. And, and doing a, making a 200, it's going to be fun. We kind of started, yeah. started something. We have to start planning now. And <laughs> if you remember, we were a little stressed out of we have no idea how many people are actually going to come to this. We have no idea what size room to get. Yeah. And we we packed the place and it was absolutely amazing. It was mind-blowing and it was so fun. Yeah. One of the things that I loved most about that whole experience was that it wasn't it wasn't just like us on stage talking to a whole bunch of people. It was like <clears throat> there were, dang it, I'm clearing my throat again. Guys, I got to stop. Mm. <laughs> it was, um, I don't even remember, four or five different podcast yeah. groups on stage. And so it's not like people were just there to see us. I think we were maybe the the like, hey, everybody, let's get together, people. Yeah. And then a bunch of people came together. That was and a great idea. Tons of crossover and tons of, you know, people that already knew each other and didn't know each other and listened to each other but never met. And, you know, it wasn't just about us. And I thought that was one of the coolest parts. Yeah. It was like a big... I met Ben that weekend yeah. for the first time. And Ben and I hung out several times in the year. Yeah. Ben Ueda. And uh, I met Josh, I think, in person there for the first time. Josh Price. Yeah. And, yep. you know, there's, there's 50 guys I met there for the first time. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Like I said, this year, has it's only been one year. And it seems like the friendships have, have gone much further than that. So mm -hmm. for that, I'm appreciative. Yeah. So Matthew, who hosted the event through his, his workplace, he's going to be in Ohio here in a couple months. And he reached out to me and said, hey, can we work on something together? And I'm like, absolutely. Sweet. He, if you haven't seen his stuff, it's really creative and really good. And, uh, and he's just a good all-around dude. Yeah. What is the name it's, of his uh, channel? Let's give him a shot. Never Not Making. Yeah. Never not making, yeah. Uh, yeah, he did a really cool – He it looks like uh, from Instagram he's been working on kind of like an art series recently, like these black and white stained boards or black and natural boards. 
making these geometric shapes really cool. But a few months ago, he made, um, they had their first kid and he made a little ATAT walker that was like a, a, <laughs> a rocking horse. And it was all done in the CNC. And when he, I heard him talk about it or saw him talk about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. It'd be simple. But then watching him put it together, it was like layer after layer after layer of plywood all cut and stacked to give this thing the right depth. It was really, really cool. So yeah, go check him out for sure. Yeah, it was a it was an awesome event. I I'm a little bit scared if we do it again, like that it may be unmanageable because <laughs> we were barely hanging on last time and getting it put together, and we had tons of help. Everybody that was there was helping us, like pack bags, and you know Kelly was awesome about getting helping us get the food set up and all the stuff. And it was still relatively small. Like if we were to do it again two years later. It's going to be big, so we might need some help handling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll definitely get uh, event planners involved, and yeah. so we can be a little bit more in, involved in the the community aspect instead of running it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, um, we didn't really have a specific topic today. I was thinking it'd be kind of cool if we just kind of bounced around uh, if everybody had couple little things they wanted to talk about. I've got something and it's, I don't even know that it's a topic. It's just something I was thinking about this morning. I was running. Um, so I've been running, we've got a treadmill not too long ago. So I've been running and watching YouTube. So it's a really awesome way to catch up on, um, in my huge backlog. And I was watching Alex Steele's videos and I'm making his big Scottish Claymore sword. And when you watch a bunch of his videos in a row, well, when I watched a bunch of his videos in a row, I started noticing patterns <clears throat> and, and each video is different. I mean, but you know, there are still some patterns in the way that they make their videos. And I think the videos on his channel are awesome. I think they're super well put together. They've got great pacing. They're fun, but educational. But one of the things that really stuck out to me when I watched three of them in a row this morning was his use of transition. And he doesn't just transition like, I don't even know how to say this. I was kind of thinking through it as I was paying attention. He does a transition from section to section over the course of like two or three shots. It's not just one shot ends a section to another shot begins a section. He'll like start to wrap up something that he's saying. And in the middle of his sentence, the camera changes, but he finishes his sentence and then it changes again and starts a new scene. I don't even know if I can, if I'm explaining that very well. I think that makes sense. Is he o- is he overlapping audio and uh, and imagery? I don't no 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 because well I mean sometimes maybe but in the the instance that I noticed it he was talking to the camera and he like started a sentence and then it you know went to a different room and he finished the sentence there and then it went into like a a different section of him grinding or whatever the thing was but the thing that it, that got me thinking about <clears throat> is how important transitions are in video making. Um, And I just, I've thought about it some, but I don't put a special effort into getting, you know, into completing a section of the video, wrapping it up as like, this is a thing, and now I'm going to move into a different section. I usually do that in the editing process, but he obviously did that in the filming process. And so Hmm. I thought maybe it'd be interesting for us to go around and talk about if we have anything like that, where we actively try to build in transitions or preparation or something like that in the filming and maybe we mm-hmm. don't but it was just on my mind i, I have a couple of uh, it's funny you bring this up because i was i every time i edit i rationalize these concepts in my mind and one when i'm just going to the next phase on the say to-do list i'd like sometimes i use the page peel edit uh, a transition I, I, mm. I sometimes i try as much as possible just use a straight cut so it's i'm not using too many bells and whistles but there are a couple that i that i've gotten myself and I think my fans used to seeing it which is the page peel so it's like okay the next thing to do is the page peel and then it goes to this and the next thing is the page peel but when I go to something that's going to take a long time I sometimes go to the dissolve to black which might give the emotional indication that time has passed so I dissolve to black and come Mm. back up like when the glue is dried or if I'm doing something that's taken a long time I just do the cross dissolve, which basically means I'm in the same band of time, but now I'm just further ahead in that same band of time. Like I said, the cross dissolve to black is usually like, okay, I've waited a long time to get back to this next section. 
So there's a couple of quick little cues that I that that I like to non-verbally communicate. And I, I assume people are noticing them. They work for me. Obviously, I'm the editor. But uh, And I always open up with the the iris open because when I watched Nosferatu, they did the iris opening, and I always thought that was such a great a great <laughs> transition. <laughs> and so I always yeah. use the iris opening and the iris closing. And I, I didn't always use it, but now I almost use it every single time. And Brett always makes fun of me. Brett always does this. Like, like when I do my final shot, Brett always goes, like that's like the hand symbol like we've just finished shooting the video <laughs> yeah i think of looney tunes when i see the iris closing i don't think of any other thing except like the, the end of looney tunes and the little circle closes oh yeah well i think that was just yeah. like a 1920s 30s thing because i i saw it at yeah. first saw it in the nosferatu movie and then when they did the nosferatu movie love like uh uh, william uh somebody who was p- pretending to be him i forget what the actor's name is um uh, anyway, they did a modern version of the movie, and they used that as well. And that, that's when it kind of reminded me. I'm like, oh, I always like that transition when they do that. So that's like opening the – it's like, okay, welcome to my world. Okay, now my little segment of my world is closing away from you for a few minutes. So that's how hmm. I like to use the Irish transition. But talking about what what you, uh, you what might be what Alex has done is also what Casey does a lot. Casey would be like, so what I've been thinking of is – and then he finishes a sentence in another room and – like, yeah. And so all of a sudden the background changes. Casey does that on almost every video he's ever shoots. Like he'll start a conversation in an airplane and then he's like in his studio. You know it's like a week later, but the sentence carries on as if he's just saying it in the moment. So that that's also yeah. that's a great technique. I never I've never done that. I always see it and go, Oh, I want to do that, but I never do it because I hardly ever talk. But, yeah. I mean, that takes planning, you know, or remembering yep. Yep. that you need to come yeah. back and, and finish something up. I mean, I guess they could be saying the same sentence twice in two different locations and then just deciding where they want to cut those two things together. Exactly. And I guess if that's a habit you get in, that that's probably comes pretty naturally. But hmm. I think I have four different transitions that I use in nearly almost every video. There's the one where it's just cut, straight cut, next scene, you realize that we're now over here. Then... I don't use it very often, but just the the cross dissolve. And that's usually like a bandsaw cut if I'm like a long curve. And that's my way of showing that time has passed Mm -hmm. when two scenes kind of fade out and into each other. There's one, um, we try to get it in one video uh, a week where I I take the, the board, like I have a piece of walnut, and I, and I, I pull it off the table saw. I'm like, now we're going to take this over the bench. And then I bring it up to the camera. I and then that, yeah. cut, and then I pull it off the camera when I get to the next scene, and when you when you cross dissolve those, it looks pretty seamless and mm. cool in, in my mind. And then um, I'm sure there's an actual name for it, but I call it the creep, where if I'm talking and I'm talking kind of long, and I know people are anxious to see the next cut, I'll have the sound of the table saw creep into talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so the audio comes first, and this is um, this is a technique. That I use that I got from um, uh, what, what's the uh, the PBS show Norm with Norm show oh, yeah. he would do that he would talk and then you would hear the table saw creep oh, yeah. in and then cut to the next thing yeah. I I can picture that like watching that show so much I never even thought about what was happening huh mm-hmm. I am, I've become lately I've become super hyper aware of editing. I, yeah. I I'm I'm constantly watching things to see how they how they transition or how they shoot things and this is TV or movies or other YouTubers and all that. Yeah, it's it's been on my mind a lot more lately. I think because now I have somebody running camera, I it maybe feels a little less like I just got to get it done and like maybe we can think through this a little bit more. And I also have a different person's perspective. So how did that work with you when you had Eric come on? Obviously, you had to direct him as to, like, I want you to kind of film the way that works with my style already. But did you, like, what was the collaboration process there to figure out how to get someone else running the camera but get it to look like you expect it to look? So, at at first, I was, I just told him to just do what you think is best and just make sure you capture the action and... I want to be more in in the shots, kind of like full body. You, I don't want just like hands doing the thing. I want people to see me. 
to kind of humanize the videos a little bit more. And then from there, we kind of worked in where um, he now, he just knows what shot works best. But sometimes I have an idea in my head and I'm kind of directing him mm -hmm. throughout the day. I'm like, oh, hey, um, we got 10 cuts to make on the table saw, but I only need two. So give me a close up and a far away and he knows what to do. And right. it's just, it's something that just developed naturally over time. We're we're on the same page now, and he knows what I want, and I I know what he's good at. So yeah, huh? I think we're still trying to figure that out, and I think Josh is doing a great job running the camera. We had a conversation the other day where I so a long time ago I went and bought specifically bought a taller tripod so that I could get the camera at eye level. So when I'm talking to the camera, I want it to be at my eye level. And that goes back to like my limited understanding of the way movies are made. But I know that if you shoot down on, if, if the camera's pointed down to a person, it gives the viewer a particular feel of power or of their, of almost voyeurism where they're looking down on something into something that already exists. If, if the camera's pointed up to the subject, the viewer sees them as authoritative or as in control or as there's like different stuff like that. And so people use camera position to get those feelings into a movie. And so I've always tried to put the camera at my eye level so that the person watching sees me as equal footing. Right. So I'm not, mm. I'm not like an expert. I'm not like a idiot. I'm, we're like on the same page. I'm trying to talk directly to you as another person. And I'd never even thought about that really. It's just like, that's just the way it feels right to me. It needs to be at eye level. And so, um, at some point previously, it had, I'd kind of figured out why I felt that way. But then I noticed the other day that Josh was holding the camera, uh, at his chest level. And so the shot that he was getting of me talking was not what I had pictured. It wasn't bad, but it was like a different thing there. And I had to think about like, well, like, why is it that that is going to look wrong in my mind and how can I explain that to him. And so I had to kind of think through it. It was interesting. Um, and I don't think one's right or wrong, but I, you know, it was, it was an interesting way to like have to check myself. It's like, well, why is this right for me? And, yeah. you know, like, is it worth giving somebody else the shot to like, maybe the way he was holding it works better. I don't know. You know, um, that's something I, str I still struggle with quite a bit because the end product is still meant to be my vision. Yeah. And still meant to be my story. So um, that's telling Eric what to shoot and letting him shoot what he wants to shoot is kind of that, that weird balance because I know what I want it to look like in my head. And there, and some of the times when I let him do his thing, I'm like, oh, that was amazing. We should yeah. do that more. I need to there's, – there's a reason there's two people in the shop because we yeah. have two different ways of looking at things. Um, but in the end, it is my vision, and I want. I guess that sounds well. No, narcissistic. It, not really. I mean, I, I it could be if you were like you know not wanting anybody else's input and like it has to be my way and whatever. But <clears throat> it sounds like a you know a collaboration, and when it comes down to it, it's a represent representation of you and of what you do and of what you. Are trying to put yeah. out there so i mean it makes sense that you would have that input you know yeah i was just curious if you guys had thought about transition stuff and you know i i wonder sometimes people who make videos how much of that type of stuff is really thought through ahead of time like if they're not professional film people you know if it's really thought through or if it's just kind of like the natural way that we hmm. you know we transition things like uh, that camera position thing wasn't something I really like set out to like, how can I be the most approachable? <laughs> you know, it was like, I don't know. It just made sense to do it a certain way. And then later on, I figured out why I felt that way about it. But years, <clears throat> years ago, I started shooting. Oh, I just cleared don't clear throat. your throat. <laughs> <laughs> Edit. Years ago, I started using when I very first wanted to learn filmmaking, I went out and I bought an Aeroflex 16 millimeter camera, which I still have, but there wouldn't be no reason for me to crank it up. It's just too expensive to do. And you know, we're all so used to immediate results right now. There's no way I'm going to film something and wait three weeks to see it. It's just a waste of time. <laughs> Send it off. Yeah. Anyway, but at the time, this was uh, within the months before 9-11, because all my equipment is July 2011 on it. That's when I bought all this equipment. 
that's when I shot this movie. And actually, I have somewhere in my footage, about two weeks before 9-11, we were shooting a movie in the Lower East Side, uh, or in the Lower lower West Financial District. And I had to run out like four minutes of film that was in the camera, which we were done shooting in the camera. I just had to run it out. So we were driving by the World Trade Center, and I pointed my camera up out of the back seat of the taxi. And I shot up at the World Trade Center as we drove around it. And I have that footage. Yeah, is like cool. the last like 20 feet of this roll of film I have. And hmm. two weeks later, it was gone. So it was pretty amazing. Somewhere in my footage, I have that. That. Hmm. Anyway, the point I'm making is, is the one thing I loved about looking at that footage, I would get it developed and I have it put on a, di- on, a, on a mini digital videotape. And when I get it back, I get back the developed film and the mini digital videotape. And that's what I edited in Final Cut. And the one thing I loved most about that was when because you didn't just stop shooting, you know, you'd spun the camera and then you'd get like a swoosh or you'd get like a, where the shutter would stay and open in the middle of a frame and you get a super bright white frame. Uh, so the one, those are the one things I love the most. So now when I shoot, I always try and I don't shut the camera off before I move it. So I always move the camera and as I'm moving it, I shut it oh. off. So when I'm looking back in the edit, I'm always looking for those squiggles, those swishes of the camera moving where you could put it in the right spot. So if you move the, if it's moving and then you pick up a move from a camera shot that you started, it makes a nice natural transition. So you'll notice a lot of times, even I talked about this a hundred times, but when I shoot a scene and fast forward and I do three camera positions, I literally pick the camera up and move it while it's filming. And then I pick it up and move it again. But when I fast forward it, it just looks like a cut, a cut, a cut. And really it's just me picking up the tripod during those 10 minutes of filming and moving it to another position. And I leave that all in when I speed it up. So I, I like looking for those natural kind of squirrely transitions. So, hmm. yeah. Nice. My secrets. Yeah. My secrets out. It, it, <laughs> it's funny how much thought we put into it. You know, yeah. it's not just, it's not just Jimmy's not just throwing a camera in the middle of the room and, and then working all day and then throwing that in the timeline. There's, there's definitely thought put into it and how to make it, digestible and, and quick and yeah and maybe you, you learn something too it's interesting to hear you say that about the swish thing because i've noticed that you do that um i i've never i don't think i've ever put like a a transition in that wasn't just a straight cut in any of my videos it's just like not how i do it naturally but i do think more about because i guess that never comes up in my brain as something i should do what i do think about is keeping position for the viewer. So like if you're, if I'm standing in front of an object that I'm working on and the camera's on my right side shooting in something, if the next shot is me moving the camera 180 degrees across and shooting the same object from a different position, it can be really confusing for the person watching. Like they don't, they don't have the spatial awareness of where you are in relation to the thing you're working on. And so that's the stuff that I think more about is like, well, if I move the camera from this shot to the next shot in a way that's going to like break up to where the viewer doesn't really know what's happening. It's going to pull them out of the thing that I'm trying to explain. And it's, it's interesting that that's the stuff that I think about more than transitions, which would also be a good way to do the same thing. Like the transition stuff is just something I need to think about integrating in a better way. When I shot the TV show, the cameraman, I, I always was very inquisitive, and you know, me and the cameraman collaborated on a lot of stuff. All the cameramen, you know, the A guys, the B guys, all of them, we would always joke around and collaborate, and I was always picking their brain. And they would always, when there was a two camera shoot, mostly on Hammered, there was always a two camera shoot going on. They would always say, uh, "Wait, you, you you crossed the line. You're on the other side. Of, you're on the other side." So when there's two cameramen. Hmm. They don't want to cross path each other because then it, the edit will just get confusing. And then they also don't, you, you could imagine that from me being like the subject, from me pointing out, like if I spread my hands out that archway, they can't. So if I have my hands out pointing left and right completely, and then I bring them to the middle, that scope or that bow, they have to stay. And if they come behind me at one point, or if one cameraman who's on the left of me spins around, becomes on the right of me, goes on the back of me, all that footage is so-called, could potentially be useless because it flips the scene. So mm. that's what you're talking about. You always got to stay on the right side of the bow is what these guys would always say. And they would be in the middle of filming and the one guy would go, oh, you, there was always, even though there would be two cameramen, one guy was always directing. And he would say, you cross me, you can't, don't cross me, go back over there. You got to stay, you got to at least stay from here to 10 feet over there. Otherwise, you know, you're going to confuse the editor or the viewer. Mm. So I learned a lot listening to those guys. And I do, sometimes I'm very conscious of bringing the camera and putting it completely on the other side of me. 
And if I shoot, if I saw this video and I'm on one side of the table to try and remain in context, if I'm not doing super close-ups, it doesn't matter if I'm doing super close-ups because you don't have any spatial awareness of what you're looking at. But if I'm doing wide shots and you see, like, for instance, if I'm on the table saw, I'm not going to do a completely 180 shot from the table saw unless I really have to. But then again, in the world of YouTube, a lot of the rules are out the window. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So, but there are moments in time where I, I'll actually look at a shot that I did and I'll go, oh, that doesn't work next to that one. So I'll literally put a flip filter on it and turn it 180 degrees so that it works better with the shot that it came in or out of. Huh. And hmm. and. But the only way you would know that I did that is if you look and it says saw stop in reverse. But your mind doesn't see that. Your oh, mind just sees the next shot because that's what it expects to see comfortably. But if you look closely, you know, one, one in a million of my shots, you'll notice the typeface or if there's any font in the room is reversed. Or you'll notice that the background is spatially opposite of what it is in reality, of what you come used to noticing. Huh. So. Interesting. Have you ever had anybody notice that? No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> and sometimes <Everybody> look now. <laughs> sometimes I'll do a shot where like if I'm tapping on the left side of something and naturally I feel in the edit I need me tapping on the right side of something and I don't have it, I just use that same shot and flip it. So everything on the wall is exactly the same thing in a mirrored image, but if I use it fast enough, nobody notices it. Oh, man. I'm going to bust you out in the comments <laughs> on this. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, this is what we're going to talk about in the spring, right? When we all meet up at Jimmy's. For, you know, a lot uh, of fans uh, want to do this. Class? If you guys want to do so. this, a lot of fans really want to do this. So, uh, I even had yeah. a fan say to me yesterday. Uh, a friend said to me yesterday, he goes, uh, "My buddy David he goes, instead of having just ten people, he goes, why don't you try and have twenty? And this way, <laughs> people could stay at area hotels, and Bob can have like a group of people for a little while. Dave could have a group, and you could have a group, and then you could all switch. So, oh, that's a good idea. So, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I get my floor poured cool. this week. Thinking of David. David's the guy who gave me that idea. David is a friend we met when we were all in Kansas City in 2015. In September of 2015, I met somebody there. That's why this community is great. Dave and I stayed in touch, and he's now become my general contractor. He's doing my floor next week. He's going to pour my, my slab floor, and he's going to do the walls, and he's helping me. We got a couple of options for windows. but So Dave met me Sweet. at that show and he said, he goes, I know, I know you want to build a building. He goes, I'm a general contractor in the upstate area. He goes, but I'm, he's actually from Maryland, but he's been working on a really long-term project for a wealthy builder, a wealthy client. So the guy keeps adding buildings to the project. So he's staying in the area. And now that I'm finally building, thankfully, he's still in the area. He says he's going to be here for another year. So he's helping me out. So David, thank you for That's that. That's awesome. Yeah. So Sweet. But yeah, so... We really got to get serious about that. And the reason I bring up the building is because I'm hoping we could work in that building by the time you guys come here at one point in June or July or whenever that's going to be. Yeah. Well, so. let's start working on that. That'd be cool. Yeah, was that going to be? When is going to be? 100 going to be? Maybe we'll hold it in the TP. 200. When is the 200? It would probably be a year from now. Yeah. Because yeah. I think we need 50 more episodes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, a lot goes into it when you make. I can't even. I lost count of how many videos I've made, but it's got to be in the 500 range, you know, considering the vlogs and every other little tiny, tiny video I made. And you get used to doing certain things. Like I'm even watching my vlogs and I'm, I, I've created a pattern, an outline that I am my, I myself am used to. And every time I edit, I'm like, oh God, I'm, am I annoying the hell out of people by doing the same things over and over again? But I try and always bring so a little bit of freshness to them. Keeping with the, the storytelling theme we have here, what is the purpose of your videos, both of you? So, Jimmy, why, when you make a video, what are you trying to show the people? Uh, well, me and my brother developed this kind of mantra to enlighten, educate, and entertain. So to say, oh, I never knew you could use that material. Wow, I love watching this video. Wow, I'm going to go and try that. So enlighten, educate, and entertain. Those are three things that we always wanted to try and that was like when we were pitching shows quite a bit. Those were the three things. And then my brother would always say he wanted to be Martha Stewart with a penis. That was his thing. Um, <laughs> that was the pitch. We'd, we'd right. always say it in the pitch huh. and people would always laugh. And uh, so the idea to educate, enlighten, and entertain. And I just had a conversation with Scott, my, my guy who helps me with my sales stuff. And we looked. Nobody's really buying my plan. I only have one plan, by the way, of the the bench so it's it sold a little bit it didn't sell a lot i mean we we didn't sell a lot 
it's up there. People could buy them. And I know you guys do really well with your plans. And Scott said, well, you just do videos where you just entertain people. Those guys actually do instructional videos. And I said, that is a good point. So like if somebody bought one of your plans, they can go back and watch piece by piece where you guys kind of do instruction. And I believe well, I believe people can do the same thing with mine, I think, because you can watch me do it, although I'm not overly explaining it. I'm not explicitly explaining it. But anyway, but also the, my, I have one I have one plan. You guys have hundreds of each, I'm assuming. So No, not hundreds. Not, you not have tens of tens have, of tens. I have tens of tens. Yeah. That's the so the, the video is just to kind of show the assembly and my process of doing something, but normally I don't get into a lot of detail. Mm. And the, the detail is in the plans. Uh, once in a while, like when I was building a bench video, um, I didn't get into a lot of detail, but there was a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, I should show people why I'm using a pocket hole screw for this, you know, because the pocket hole screw is meant to bring two pieces together. And that's, I think that's a great tip. But then I wasn't showing measurements or, um, a lot of detail in the, in the build itself. I'm like, I'll save that for the plan so I can keep the video nice and, nice and punchy. Mm-hmm. And if you are good at, if you are experienced at building things like this, you'll, you can watch the video and then make your own. If you need a little help, then you can go and, and get the plans for it. That's my thought process on the plans too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, to answer your question, David, I, the reason I make the, the the purpose, I don't remember how you phrased it. The reason I make videos is to, let's see, how do I say this? Imagine you're a person who wants a wooden katana and you go, I don't have any clue how to go from bare wood to a sword looking thing. Well, the purpose of that particular video was to show somebody all of the steps that need to happen to go from raw material to finished product. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to do that thing. It doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's going to do that thing or that everybody, anybody has those tools or that any of that stuff. But the purpose is to show start to finish. Here's how a thing is made. So when that person goes, I wish I could make a whatever out of a whatever, they realize that everything is just made up of steps, of small steps. And if they see you know, project A from start to finish, then maybe project B won't be quite as daunting for them. Like that's my purpose is for me to be able to do the things that I want and use those things as an example for other people. Like this stuff is really not that hard. I mean, it's not impossible. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's, you know, it takes a while or takes extra skill or whatever, but it's possible, you know, and I want people to realize that they're capable of more than they think they are. That's why I do it. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I, to inspire, entertain, and to just kind of show that creativity is not something you're born with. It's something that can be taught. So, um, maybe you're not going to build the exact same thing as me, but maybe you can pull an idea out of that and incorporate it into your project. Or maybe it's, I want, I want to spark ideas in people Mm. and, I don't know that I accomplished that, but that is the goal. And the more videos that I make, the I think the more I'll get to accomplishing, um, igniting that spark in, in people. Here's a question for you. Not a, this isn't a challenge. It's more of a question. How could you gauge that? How could you hmm. measure if you're accomplishing that goal? It's... That's a that's a good question. I You know, when, when people send me... Um, um, photos or videos of, of stuff that they're making that was inspired by by what I do. Um, whether it's like you went step by step and made the thing or you took that one thing and made it your own into something else. Those, th- that's, that's, that's the gauge, I think. That's the gauge. Cool. Yeah. Hmm. Right on. Oh, you know what? I just realized I never said what I was working on this week. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Skipped what are you over. working on, Bob? Well, it was really fun, and I don't know why I just now thought of it, but I made a slingshot cannon that's shaped like a candy cane. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to Sweet. do something for Christmas, and we got to talking, and it turned in from like this. Basically, I wanted to decorate a Christmas tree with a slingshot, and so it turned from this one thing into this other thing, and then it ended up as a PV a four-inch PVC candy cane 
with a slingshot on the inside of it. So you, and it's like got red tape wrapped around it. So it looks like a candy cane. And so you pull this string back out of the back of it and kind of, you know, cock it, get it held there. And then you just fill up the tube with decorations and then let it go. And it shoots the decorations. So Friday, Friday afternoon, we had an afternoon of setting up a fake tree in the driveway and just shooting stuff at it for like several hours. And it was so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. Is that what all your teaser photos were? Yes. That was the the stuff that we shot and, you know, the some of the construction material. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Completely silly and useless and kind of worked half as well as I hoped it did. But, or as it would, but it did work. So. <laughs> And I got to shoot my kids with like a whole candy cane load of uh, popcorn. That was a lot of fun too. <laughs> we were out nice. doing, <laughs> we were out like shooting all this stuff, and I heard them get off the bus in front of the house, and so I loaded it up with with popcorn. They came running around the house. I'm like, "Oh, guys, look, go look at the Christmas tree. Go check it out. Look at all the stuff we got in the tree." You know, I'm like trying to get them up by the tree. I'm like, "No, look in there. Look how many <laughs> decorations we got in the tree." And then they were all looking. Uh, guys, turn around. They'll turn around. Poof! Like two bags of popcorn right <laughs> to the face. It was awesome. Anyway, that's oh, what I did this week. So that'll be awesome. Out, that'll be out Thursday, hopefully. <clears throat> so we we were all kind of kicking around some ideas. I reached out to some friends in, this morning before we got together and uh, asked somebody if they wanted to hear any topics. Some of my friends and uh, someone someone asked, "How do you how do you handle free tools?" And we've talked about this in the past, but I think we're all a little bit obviously further advanced than we were before. In the beginning, that's when you start a YouTube channel. You start getting some traction. People start sending you free tools. Now that I have a million subscribers, Bob, you have over a million. Dave, you've grown considerably since we all started. Do you guys still get free tools? Because I know I've been getting a lot of free tools. And I just want to say one thing. Fans always say to me, well, fans say, oh, that's great. But people that aren't genuine fans, they often say, oh, great. The guy who doesn't need them is the guy who gets them. But I wanted to put a disclaimer out there. When I get free tools, I give a lot of them away. People don't see that. So I'll show, open them up on camera. And if I have multiples of something, I'll just give them to the next guy that shows up. Or I'll give them to a friend or I know somebody that needs them. So I don't always show that part, the philanthropy, you might say, of me getting free tools and then giving them away months or a year later or the next couple of days. So that's one thing that the trolls don't see. So... Hmm. I like to consider the fact that we're in this position. Yeah, give me free tools. You get the exposure you get. I'll use them for a few videos, and then I'll give them to somebody. So didn't didn't you show up to making it one hundred with a truck full of tools? <laughs> I did. To give away? <laughs> I did. I get, <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, I learned something before I went to making it one hundred. Uh, Brett was kind of pushing me to clean up, and Brett had just showed up. And then I literally like I looked at so many of the things I had. I'm like, I'm I'm just like a mental case hoarder. I have all these things because I think I'm going to use seven sanders because I think I'm going to use 15 drills. Oh, that was the drill I got when I was uh, at a, you know, for some sentimental reason with my dad. I had so many tools so that when it came up to making 100, I knew there was going to be so many people that would want these things. I just loaded my truck up with whatever I could and just gave it all away. And that's going to keep happening as, as my cache of things build up. And so I, that's why I like now to be able to get free tools because I give a lot of them away. I keep the ones that I'm like, oh, I'm comfortable using this. I'll use this for as long as I can until something else comes along and then I'll pass it down the road. So what do you guys think? Have you guys been getting any offers or anything? I, so I don't, a lot of my, my floor standing tools I have purchased on my own and, uh, as far as like the bigger tools, the only one that was given to me was my saw stop table saw. But the the disclaimer to that is it's my second one. I paid for my first one. And when I moved into the new shop, I upgraded the electrical and we worked out a, a deal where they were going to send me a, a two, 220 version, a three horsepower one. And I know that that is the only table saw brand that I want to use because of some of the technology that's involved in it and the, and the safety features. As far as all the other tools, the, the freestanding tools, I've gotten jigs and stuff for free, but all the freestanding tools I've paid for, the Glowforge, the lathe, the drill press, and, and everything else, the planer, and that I paid for that. 
and I'm a little hesitant these days to accept free tools because of the commitment that's involved. I yeah. don't want to accept a tool and then um, n- feel like I now have to promote this company that's maybe not paying me. And I this is a business, so yeah. I need to get paid. And I, I would... I think Bob and I have had this conversation where there's a there's a point where like it's better to just buy the tool and then you can deface it or give it away <laughs> or sell it and use it as yeah. you wish. Yeah. Right. Instead of being under the control of somebody else. I'm with you a hundred percent, hundred and twenty percent on that. Like <laughs> I I trying to think if I have any tools that were given to me. I don't know that I do. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a lot of people do that. I know some really successful channels that take free tools instead of payment all the time. And okay, cool. That works for them. This is my opinion. So don't take it as anything other than that. But I, I would rather not be bound. Just like you said, I would rather Mm -hmm. not be bound to a company if I don't have to be. I, okay, here's some examples and I'll try to leave names out so we don't break any relationships or anything. There was a, a company that I was talking to for a long time. A lot of people have worked with them. Great company, great tools. They were offering me, I was trying to say, let's, you know, sponsor videos, give me the machines as part of the payment so the money is down. And that way it works out for both of us, right? You're not shelling out tons of money, but at the same time, there's a value to the fact that I'm making a video about your thing. That's where the money comes in. There has to be a value to what I do. Otherwise, it's a really one-sided relationship. So I said, let's try to do both. Let's find a middle ground. They came to where they were giving, they, their plan was to give me less money than the value of the tools that they were giving me. And in my mind, that makes zero sense mm-hmm. for me. Cause I could, I could just go buy those tools and not have to promote them and still have the tool that I wanted, you know, paying a little bit more, but never be indebted to this company. And it, like you said, if I want to deface it, if I want to give it away and change brands later, I can do that. And the cost for me is, not really very much more than if, you know, if I'd just taken this stuff from them, but I'm not bound to anybody. Another company that I was really interested in recently <clears throat> went to talk to them, and we've, David and I have talked about this offline. The owner of the company likes my videos, but he was mad because I cover their logos. And he didn't want to work with me because up until today, I've covered the logo on the tools that I already have from that company. Did you get a deal with them? No, I didn't pursue it anymore because that makes no sense to me. He was basically saying, because you didn't advertise for me for free already, right. I don't want to work with you. That's right <laughs> That's on, funny. dude. Perfectly fine. Now, I love the tools. I love the company. I would love to work with them, right. but I'm not willing to be used that way. And so for me, when I think of free tools, I think of those companies trying to get as much as they possibly can for as little as they possibly can. And that's just not my gig. That's just not something mm-hmm. I want. Now, like I said, my opinion, I'm not talking yeah. bad about anybody who does it otherwise, another way, but for the way that I want to run my business and who I want to be beholden to, right. it's not getting free tools. I want to be beholden to the people that watch my videos to give them the best thing I can give, not try to figure out how to shoehorn in a tool mm-hmm. and a sales pitch to a tool that I could just buy because I'm blessed enough to make enough money to buy it myself. That's me. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I remember back when I was in, I didn't have a lot of tools, and I'm in the tool uh, buying process. And I know when I watch some of my favorite woodworkers and I see the tool that they're using, I see them succeed with that tool. That's the tool that I want because I see this person that I like, they're using a tool, and they accomplish something and so and and i would go and buy that tool and so i know with the position that i'm in now people see the tools that i'm using and will buy it because they see me succeed with those those tools and so i'm very conscious of the tools that i use and i know that people are going to i know it's going to influence people um and so that's something i always think about lately and I, I, there's there's guilt involved in this, but I've been buying tools that I would say are a little bit more expensive because there's two things that are really, really important to me right now. And one is dust collection and the other one is efficiency. And I'm trying to make 
of videos as fast as I can while being safe and not creating a mess um, and saving my lungs. And so I bought a big planer. I bought a big drum sander. And you're probably not going to see them used in my videos that much. I, I'm mm. going to use these tools to kind of like <clears throat> prep my pieces. So when it comes time for um, to shoot the video, I already have the I have these pieces cut, and now we're going to assemble it. If you don't have a you know you don't need a big planer to do this, you could use a smaller planer. But the bigger planer allows me to run two boards through there at one time. You don't need a drum sander, but the drum sander allows me to sand something flat really quick, and and then film the part that I need. And a lot of times, if you have a decent hardwood dealer in your area, you can have them plain wood to a certain size or cut to a certain size where you can take it home. So I got these bigger tools, and they might not make it into many videos, mm. but it's to help me be more efficient in my shop. That's kind of a weird thing. Like, I've been hearing a lot of that in comments lately. Like, specifically that um, I, I made the point in my Katana video to say, this is all made from hardwood flooring. Anybody can get a hold of that. And that was the point of the thing. And then there have been so many comments that were like, yeah, I can get hardwood flooring, but I don't have $25,000 in tools. Okay, I get it. My tools are nicer than some piece, people's because I've been working at this for a long time and I've worked up to those tools. Now, I can't, I can't justify that and I can't explain that to everybody. I get it. I wish that there were a way to get across the point and be able to use those tools, like you're saying, without that guilt, right? To be able to use them and and in a in a kind way say, look, this is you know, like I've I've got this stuff because I've been working on it. This is what I do for a living. I just tell everybody but, to start a YouTube <clears throat> channel. They're like, yeah, I wish I had that. I'm like, just start a YouTube <laughs> channel. And it, this is completely anybody could do what we do. That's the greatest yeah. thing about it. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So when someone complains, I go, oh, the, well, the biggest complaint, and this is why I'm getting defensive on my intro for this cop concept, this topic is people are always like, oh, the guy who needs them the, the least gets the free tools all the time. But like I said, I, I pay it forward. I give people tools constantly. So I get them if I use them in a video twice or three times, and then I eventually give them away. Uh, Brett said, he goes, oh, great. Now we have 700 grinders, where a couple weeks ago, we only had two that worked good. Now I got like 500, which is great because I love having grinders. I hate having to change the top, so I don't have to change the top ever. I have one grinder per every cutting disc that ever existed. It's <laughs> a lot of grinders. <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, that's when people say, oh, the guy that needs him the least gets all the free stuff. I'm like, well, all you got, it's real simple. Just start a YouTube channel. Make 600 mm. videos and do it for seven years and you get whatever you want. It's real easy. Uh, but uh, that being said, I wanted to just, uh, I, I, I'm getting, the reason this conversation came up is because I got a package of free tools yesterday. And um, that's one thing. But I'm signing a deal with a CNC company. I'm going, I'm getting a 10 by 5 CNC machine. I don't want to say yet until it's actually in the shop, just in case things go wrong. But I reached out to like four or five companies, and my, my, my offer to them was, I don't need to own it. Just park it in my space. You guys could use it as an advertising tool because it's going to get used in my shop in more than one video. Taylor and I could use it to actually make money with. I could make videos with it. And as I look, if you want to put a so-and-so attachment on it, you know, a tool changer or a vacuum thing, whatever you guys want to do, it's yours. It's just parked in my space so I could use it. And I put that offer out to a few people, and one company really likes the concept. And in January, I'm getting a 5 by 10 machine. And I said, I'm not going to own it. It's going to be parked there for two years at the least. And if they decide they want to keep it there, and if they decide that, you know what, let's give Jimmy the new such and such, because and they'll just come and switch it out. So I think that I think I made a pretty good deal. And it's... $50,000 that I don't have to spend and I get yeah. I get the advantage of using that machine and I, I, I yeah. I'm, I'm happy with the deal and we'll see we'll see once the machine gets in place and gets set up you guys will see what it is but so that, there I am and then I'm also trading I'm trying to trade out some exposure for the building and I've gotten some really good some really good responses for a few people so I, I, I'm, I'm not getting things for flat out free but people are giving them to me for, you know, cost or some, some pretty good, good deals. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think you got to, in any of those cases, you got to look at the value cost, Yeah. right? I mean, $50,000 for a machine. Yeah. You're probably not going to go buy that on your own, but if you get access to use it for free, that's cool. A, you know, a thousand dollar power tool 
is still a big investment, but if you can make your thousand dollars back by using that a few times, then like that's a different story. Yeah. But something like a fifty thousand dollar CNC, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna. It would take you quite a while to like cover that cost. I would oh expect. no, I, I for sure. I mean, and I'm real excited to get it because there's a lot of sign work uh, that that will really get utilized. Uh, I'll utilize it for sign work. That I mean, I have a potential deal with with an advertiser that wants me to make twenty signs. And my agent's like, that's crazy, isn't it? I'm like, well, the value is because we were going to trade part of a value for a big object. And uh, so now with the CNC machine, I'm going to go back and say, hey, I got a CNC machine now. I can do those 20 signs much more simply than, than I would have been able to do them. Hmm. So it's, it's, an, it's well, some you, advertising. No, that's, that's, not, that's not how you sell it. That's not how you sell it. Well, I've got a CNC machine so I can make them better. Not easier because then it – Oh, takes no, down the, the value. No, I can I can make these better, <laughs> like ten time better signs than I could have before. That's a good. That's, that's a great point. It. But the client doesn't know any of this. We just we're just still oh. we're still mulling over whether it's worth the value of it or not. The client gotcha. doesn't. The client doesn't care how I make them. So, but that's a good point to sell down the road. So that's the idea of free tools. And then the the other thing too is is the the other side of the coin is you get paid really well by a company that makes a specific color tool, and then. They don't answer your emails anymore, but you got seven thousand, ten thousand dollars worth of this certain <laughs> color tool. What do you do? You yeah. know, everybody thinks you're the golden boy. Isn't gold? Gold is almost the color. Everyone thinks you're the golden boy of this company, and you're not. And so, what do you do? You got to mix it up. You got to take other free tools from other people so that those colors start to mix uh, together. That's why you're doing it. I see. Well, that was part well, of the thought it, process. The other side of it is if you happen to like a particular tool brand yeah. and you buy a whole bunch of them because you actually like using them but they're not sponsored and you have a lot of that color in your shop people just assume that you're sponsored by them that's the other problem even, too even if you color the logos i guess i could go the director route and just paint everything white i'm gonna paint everything but. white after this conversation <laughs> <laughs> you know what you should do is get a white spray paint sponsor somebody to give you a whole bunch of free white spray paint <laughs> then you can go paint i've been trying to get in touch free. with montana See? no one calls me back I'm going to tell you guys in the after show about crashing my drone. Oh, no. So, <clears throat> But before we do that, let's talk about what we've been watching. Uh, a, a brand new channel. April Wilkerson introduced the world to Anne of All Trades yesterday in, in her recent video. Oh, I've been looking oh, at her. She's and, amazing. Anne's great. Yeah, yeah. She's extremely talented. And uh, she got a brand new YouTube channel. And it's going to be really, really good. There's a couple, there's only a handful of videos there now, but she's really good at explaining things. She was at, um, I'm trying to remember which show it was, maybe Woodworking in America in Kansas City, the one we went to or something. Mm -hmm. And she was there with one of the uh, Texas Heritage, I think, let's see who she's with. Um, and she was over there doing like awesome woodwork, you know, hand tool stuff. Uh, whoa. Sorry, that? that was ahead of video, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway she's extremely talented um yeah go check her out for sure jimmy what you got i'm gonna i'm gonna plug my buddy jim jim bollinger i do write fabrications d-o-r-i-t-e fabrication jim is a machinist and a, and a welder and a fabricator and he's sort of my he's my link to the machining world and he's he's pushes me and he's like you got to watch this guy you got to know this guy you got to talk to this guy and so jim thank you very much jim's become a good friend in the last couple of months maybe since may we met at the open house. And if, if you guys see my Canon video where I shoot a video, uh, where I shoot a cannon, Jim made the big giant one that looks like more like a civil war cannon. And over that project we, we bonded. So just want to check it. And then he, he put a video out yesterday and he gives a little shout out to me in the video. So you'll find it. It's a secret note to me. Secret love note. <laughs> nice. Well, mine is completely off topic. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just one of my favorite videos of all time. I posted this to Twitter, um, but I just want to put it on here because it's hilarious. It's something called Domain Name Dollar Store. <laughs> <laughs> and it's from like nine years ago. It is just this little comedy video about funny domain names. But let me play you a clip of it, and then you can go watch Please the whole do. thing. Ready? All right, here's a clip. Find your domain names with the word donkey in it. Get three donkey domain names for free. Like Pickle Donkey Knife, Knife Pickle Donkey, and Pickle Knife and Donkey. Who wouldn't want those.coms? Anyway, it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's really funny. You should just go watch it. Um, but it's like, 
It was like one of the first internet videos that I found that it was like, oh, wow, this is why there's a video on the internet um, <laughs> nine years ago. So go check that out. All right. You guys got anything else? Yeah. Can yeah. I ask the audience something? Uh, it's time for me to read or listen to a new book. Please Ooh. send me recommendations. Could be business, could be entertainment, could be making, whatever. Send me recommendations. I can give you nice. a, a... I haven't read or listened to it yet, but my buddy uh, Nick Bilton, he just wrote a book about the... the. Uh, it just came on audio, and I wasn't unprepared, so I don't have the exact title of the book. <laughs> but... Um, uh, 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 is anybody doing... Nick Bilton. Yeah, look at Nick's newest book. It's called The Silk Road. Something about the black. It's actually really. Oh, uh, the underground internet. Yeah. And he does a whole thing about this guy who had like millions of dollars in internet Bitcoin trading, selling drugs, and and it all went to pot. And the guy's doing jail time right now. And Nick did a, a full investigative report hmm. on it. And it just went on audiobook yesterday. So what it can. You know Nick? Yeah, Nick was a student of mine in the 90s. Oh, and cool. he's he's gone. Ameri- to f- American Kingpin. That's the name of the book. Yep. Actually, Casey, Casey, and him are friends too, because Casey showcased it when it first came out a couple months ago. But now it's now hmm. it's on uh, audio. Yeah, I, okay. I heard. A, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I heard a an intensive interview with him about it on NPR, and it's a pretty amazing story that he covered. Now that it's on audio book, I'm going to listen to it because I don't know how to read. <laughs> and on that on that note we'll uh, wrap up the show alright cool thanks for listening everybody thank you thank you I love listening to books <laughs>